Estes Park isn't just a place for people to punch a time card and work an empty job and then just live in their car. It's a place to connect, to belong, to put down roots. Hope is contagious. We have a long tradition of coming together at times of crisis. And we're at a crossroads right now. The whole world is at a crossroads. The world has been difficult. Hasn't always been so kind, so good to those of us just starting off. Pretty soon, pretty soon, we will be able to build a better world. This is how we do it. We get plugged in, we get involved, get engaged, we take the torch, we take the reins. We become the architects of our own future. Welcome back to the Colorado Switchblade. I'm Jason Van Tatenove. Man, I've got a great interview today it's with another town trustee candidate, John Meissner. Now, John's got kind of a bad rap in town. A lot of people think John's just kind of an outspoken asshole. But there's no doubting that the man's brilliant. He's well-researched. He knows history. He knows science. He calls it how he sees it. And I think, I think we may need more of that. We may need people willing to be the asshole to talk about moving forward in better ways. And man, he's just so passionate with it too. I'll let you decide that for yourselves. But it's definitely an interview worth listening to to the very end. And it's a long one, it's pushing an hour. But take the time. Our future of this town and the direction it heads um, kind of depends on it. As far as listening to all these, going out and engaging and, and getting to know the candidates that are there. Um, before we jump into the interview, I wanted to, to say the weekend rant this weekend is going to kind of be a combo thing. I'm going to be talking about the, uh, the ballot initiatives and giving my opinion on them, um, one specifically. And I think I may then uh, let you know who I'm going to vote for and why. Um, so if, if that's something that interests you, that'll be uh, this weekend. Well, let's just jump into the interview and uh, hear what John Meissner's got to say about Estes Park and the future of it. Okay, folks, we're here with John Meissner, who is running for town trustee, and um, this should be a great interview. John's been kind of a cornerstone of the town for a while, one of the historians that, that always knows the background of what's going on. So, um, yeah, let's just get into it. Hi, John, how you doing? I'm great, thank you. Thank you, Jason, for inviting me to this. Absolutely. We had a successful series, and so we now have all of the candidates who aren't incumbents have been before your microphone, so that's really nice. Uh, and I hope that the two incumbents see that it is a way to get their message out as well, and so that you get all six of us. Uh, that would be um, a, a, a nice accomplishment for Estes Park. This, this election has been without buzz, uh, without a lot of excitement. Um, and I, that kind of tells me, as someone who's looked at a lot of elections and been involved in, in the past in Estes Park, 
that like compared to the recent school board election, which had hundreds of emails and a huge social media, um, just back and forth. This one, I think, is, again, I hate to say this, but I think it's kind of decided. I'm not saying I'm a soothsayer can read tea leaves, but I think most people think, oh, the economy's good, and Estes Park just broke all kinds of sales tax records, so let's not change horses. Uh, and again, I want to single out, I think all the candidates have done a great job, but Kirby in particular has been on point and, and at the League of Women Voters. Um, she, she's just a candidate that knows um, how to take notes and how to say I'm listening. And so um, I'm, I'm hopeful. And, and I've said to everyone, I said at the League, I said to the Trail Gazette editorial board, I have no chance of getting elected. I will be the last place person, as it always is the case. Uh, and I will continue to run, and I'll continue to use this uh, candidacy as a way to express um, views and concerns that I have that don't often get um, into the public, or sometimes I have great difficulty getting people to listen to. And I've noticed some you know, impact that I've had just in the past two weeks, just from bringing things up, where there's clearly a movement that because people, I make them uncomfortable. And so they, they react, and they say, I'd rather kick out those stops that John's standing up and yelling about and just take away that megaphone that he has and solve the problem. And so it's clumsy. It's, I mean, on my part, it's clumsy. It's, it's rude. Uh, uh, but I've, I've been here a long time and I have certain things that I believe very strongly about and I'm very compassionate about and feel like objectively uh, I'm, I'm in the right when it's a fact-based um, type of item that we're talking about. And so, again, you're not going to disappoint me if you don't vote for me. I hope you get out and vote. That's the biggest yeah. issue that I have. Don't be complacent about this election. Let's show that we did, as a community, um, admire the candidates that, that, that ran. Um, and, again, use your opportunity. This is one of your few, as a community, to get out and, and have your voice be heard. Um, there's very few opportunities in town for that to occur, uh, and this is one where you can send a message. And so sometimes messages are sent via people's votes. Sure. Yeah. So before we get into all that, let's let's go back a little bit in, sure. in history um, and, and talk about what how you wound up here in Estes Park and, and kind of who you are, you know, wh sure. what brought you to where we are today? So like many of the other candidates that didn't grow up in Colorado, uh, we vacationed here in the summers. And in my case, my parents um, and their grandparents and their great-grandparents all lived in western Nebraska in a small community between North Platte and Ogallala. And they were in agriculture. And so at the end of wheat harvest, every summer, they would come up and spend two weeks in Estes Park. And so my mother's father built a cabin, very primitive cabin, out near the uh, Beaver Meadows entrance um, in 1942. Had no electricity, had no water. Uh, every summer they'd come out and improve it. Uh, but that was their family vacation, and so that turned into then my family vacation. That cabin was gone by the time I was born, and so when my family came up, I have an older sister, we'd stay at the YMCA, or yeah. we'd stay at various, uh, I remember, tiny town cottages where the miniature yeah. golf course was. And so for it was a very idyllic time. It was a really fun place to, to vacation and grow up in, and I just remember we purchased school clothes when we left Estes Park to go back to Nebraska at Longmont, because it was just close to the beginning of the school year. And we'd get our last miniature golf game in or our last time around the go-kart track. And I get emotional every time I say this because that was the end of the summer for me. And so it's like, okay, this is now a new whole start for the next year. 
And so I just always treasured that Estes Park experience. And so when my parents built their own kind of cabin in 79, then my sister worked up here when she was in school in the summers and I'd stay up here in the summers and my grandmother, grandmother was kind of our chaperone at certain times. So it just has a special place in my heart. And it's just once you vacation at a place that's so beautiful, you just, you can't get it out of your system. So I'd always use it as a kind of a home base wherever I went. And so my career um, took me to a lot of places within the United States. And I went to medical school in North Carolina. And that medical program is Duke University. And they emphasize research. And so unlike other schools, it's a very unusual program. They really compress the, the classroom things. And they emphasize taking a year and going and working in a lab. So for that year, I had been to Japan is in high school as an exchange student. So I went back to Japan and worked in Tokyo. And I caught the bug of doing lab work and working at the bench. And so I got very interested. We were working with papillomavirus, which is the virus that causes warts. Right. But it also causes genital warts. And it's now been connected to cervical cancer and other types of cancers, genital cancers. So I was working at that. And I came back and I graduated, got my MD. But I said, I want to go back and work uh, in the laboratory. And so I started then at Duke and then went to Georgia, worked at the University of Georgia, worked at the CDC in Atlanta during the Olympics. Um, had a great experience there, again working with papillomavirus, but by that time it was connected with cervical cancer. So we were looking with cell lines like HeLa or Caskey that are derived from human patients. Um, and we just would sequence those, get the genetic sequence of those and see how the virus had integrated itself into the human DNA. So that was my project when I was there, along with other things. Uh, from that I went to... Fort Collins and worked at the CDC, always doing basic genetic sequence data, okay. which is just like opening a book and reading it. Uh, and it was hard to do in the 1960s and 1970s. It wow. became a skill by the time I was working in the 1990s, where it was pouring gels that were giant between glass plates. So it was really technically somewhat difficult. And then, you know, expose these were hot, so these are radioisotopes, so you'd put film against that, and you had to check it every so often to see how much. Now it's all automated. Now there is no art to it at all. And I feel bad because we would just stare at these, at these what they were, x-ray films and try to do a DNA ladder and make sure we were reading everything properly. Now it's just you put it in a machine and the machine tells you the answers. And you don't have any way to see if, you, if that's right or that's incorrect. So I became something of a proofreader. Uh, and kind of a fact checker and kind of finding errors in other people's sequence work for some very important viruses. Uh, and so that didn't earn me the greatest reputation as I didn't earn a lot of friends that way, but I made the science better. Uh, and so I, I took on some fairly large people in some fairly large institutions that were actually fabricating data. Mm -hmm. So I'm not unused to being attacked. I'm not unused to taking on challenges that I don't always um, look like the polite, kind, nice guy, but I have one truth and that, or one, you know, kind of this has to be, this has to be no exceptions, has to be right, and that's science and, and just that kind of truth at that kind of level. So I was in Nevada at the time that some programs opened up overseas with the Department of Defense working at the University of Nevada in Reno. At that time, it was with hantavirus, which is a pathogenic virus that's in rats and mice in South America and yeah, expanded. And so I was working more with pathogenic viruses, so things that would be used in bioweapons like smallpox and other things. So I got the opportunity to go over to Russia. So I spent some time in a, in a former bioweapons facility called Vector, which is in Novosibirsk. It's actually in a community called Akademgordok. 
and I was supposed to be monitoring money that we were spending and if they were spending it properly, but this is Russia, post-Soviet Union. And so even with that, they were very hesitant and skeptical and wondering if I had other motives besides just being there and watching to make sure they were doing things properly. And I was promised to work with smallpox and to work with some of these uh, strains that have just been put in freezers now because there's only supposed to be two institutions, though I think there's multiple institutions that have smallpox now that it's been eradicated. But things didn't exactly work out, so and there were frequent times when they'd say, oh, we're shutting down this lab, or oh, we've got to have you go. So uh, a nice little uh, event that happened then is Port and Down in England, which is again a, a research facility and a weapons facility. I worked over there. And so at that time, we were working on Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, which was a new outbreak that had been discovered both in Crimea uh, and in the Congo region of Africa. And so again, intense research, people you know, kind of rushing to try to be the first to get some genetic information out. And I was on the team that found, again, some problems with somebody else's work that was fairly high up, and it was a battle. And again, I was a small fry in, in a big field, but we got it done. And I, I again, not going to apologize for it. Uh, ultimately, they had to admit that one of their researchers was, was fabricating data, and that is a big no-no in science. So uh, that's a really lengthy way to say, and then I was using Estes Park at those times. I wasn't in those locations to kind of you know regroup, recover, take some time off. And so I just decided hey, you know, Estes Park might be a nice place to just kind of settle down in. Yeah. Uh, and I became very interested in history, and especially the history as it relates to primary source material, uh, which is, you know, the original newspapers, the original photographs, the original documents, and it was very similar to what I'm doing in a scientific field with research. Sure. And so I love big research libraries and big places that have maybe only one or two copies of something that's known, and it's just magical to sit in those locations and pull those books down off the shelf and look at it, and it's the same way. I like making discoveries. Part of science is to, to know things. I learned something today that no one else in the, in the entire world knows, and that's a pretty, you know, it's, it can be kind of, well, who cares, but it can be a special feeling. And so the same things comes with, with, with historical research, with any kind of research. You can learn things that kind of, suddenly now things make a little more sense when you work out a family tree and you say, oh, that person's related to this person. That's why they're both in Estes Park at the same time. Uh, because generally Occam's razor is, you know, the easiest explanation is the best. And so I'm always, you know, looking for those things to try and things, things that don't make sense to me. I want to say, how can this make sense? If there's a date here and there's a photograph here that's accurately dated and they're not agreeing, which one is right and which one do we have to throw out? So that makes me, again, not the biggest, I don't have a lot of fans in Estes Park. Uh, and I take on some 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 big big names and some big people, and I won't apologize for it. And I can continue to say, when you chase me out of town with the pitchforks, and it may happen, I will have left it better than when I arrived. There were things in town that were just so frustrating when I first arrived about research that I was trying to do about businesses or cabins or families. And I said, if this is so hard for me, imagine what it is for anyone, because I have skills and abilities, and I know where to look for these things and where they're housed or hidden. Uh, so let's make this easy for everybody. So that's when I got into the digitization of newspapers and the digitization of photographs and the digitization of postcards, and I make it free. And again, we're not the biggest institution. We're not the biggest group. We don't have the most information out there, but stick around. It, so it, what, what is the institution? What's the group you're talking So about? we started as something called the Estes Park History Rescue Project because okay. at the time, 
it was a mouthful. And I remember being on the radio and the people that were interviewing me were like, could you please change this name uh, or just, you know, let's go with the acronym. And it was, it was, it was a, a, a way too many words to say, if we have an, a, an event like a big fire or a flood, as I was witnessing in other communities, and this history gets washed away, we can't get it back. Right. There are some things that if they're not digitized, if it's your only copy, hard copy of a newspaper from 1921, and it's gone, that means it's gone. And so we have a history of that in Colorado starting from the beginning of 1858. We started publishing, publishing newspapers in 1859. We have some of those newspapers, but we don't have all of them. Right. And so there's information. Those are gaps there, and we can't recover that information any other way until we invent a time machine and go back. Larimer County's first paper was published in 1873, and we don't have any copies of it. We only have hints of it. So it's like going back and doing, you know, the Romans and the Greeks when they wrote, and somebody wrote later about something they'd read earlier. We're dealing with that currently, and it's so discouraging that I can't look at an 1874 paper from Larimer County that mentions Lord Dunraven coming or mentions Isabella Bird departing. I can't go to a hotel register where I know they stayed because those hotel registers are gone. I'm hopeful that some of these things were recognized earlier and were stolen and are actually sitting in someone's collection somewhere and are safe. And that happens, I'm not saying it happens very often, but it's so exciting when it does happen, when something surfaces that's been submerged and suddenly we learn 10 things about a person or an event that we had no way of knowing before that. And again, things now start to make a little more sense. And a transition of a business from one order to another, to another, that gap is filled in and we don't have to say this, I don't understand it, I'm confused by this. So that was our effort with the Estes Park History Rescue Project was first to make sure we're getting the newspapers in a safe location. And when did that start? That started 12 years ago, around 2008 actually is when it started officially. Uh, and when I was on a radio station that we had here every week, giving people kind of information that, hey, we had earthquakes in Estes Park in the 1880s, or hey, isn't this interesting? Or hey, I'm looking for this. And through that, some people contacted me that had amazing collections. I'm, I'm, I'm not at all shocked that almost every other household and cabin and cottage in Estes Park has something in the walls, in the floor, or just sitting on a shelf. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And so it's fun when those people bring it in and say, is this something you're interested in? And in general, it's always something I'm interested in looking at. Uh, and so I just because I don't have a great brain, but it helps to visually file away things. Sure. Um, so I have a fairly good kind of muscle memory or eye memory or whatever everyone call it of downtown Estes Park. And so somebody can put a picture in front of me and I can say, this is approximately the year that was taken, or this isn't even Estes Park, which often it comes up. Somebody has something labeled Estes Park, like a gas station, mm -hmm. and I'll look at it and say, that's Greeley or that's somewhere else, but I can just tell from the topography and from the, the sure. peaks in the background and the trees and all these things. And again, I'm not saying I'm, I'm a genius, I'm a magician, but I love to keep feeding more of that information into the system so it helps me then when I see the new un, you know, photograph that I haven't seen. And there's still more photographs that I haven't seen than photographs that I have. So everything, you know, kind of fits in and, and helps and works. And so, and again, I'm not saying, oh my gosh, I'm you, you got to have me. Anyone can do this. It's just I have the time and, and I have the interest in doing it. Yeah, so you have the background. I have the background and, I, and I've been, you know, I'm not perfect and I haven't done everything as far as recording this or getting it out for people to, to, to look at. But again, stick around. We're not done. Uh, and so then with Estes Park History Rescue Project, once I got the newspapers, the Estes Park specific newspapers in a safe place, and now they're digitized up to 1975. And again, I congratulate the library and the museum for taking this project on. 
Right. And so there are still gaps in 1952, and I'm still kind of a, come on, let's fill this gap in. We're also doing it independent of them, and we're actually annotating it because the papers are not perfect, and they don't explain when a, a woman marries, she loses her maiden name. And so we make those connections in brackets and say, this is actually who this is, if you're confused by this. Um, and again, we go out and search for other material, and that can be anything. Estes Park was a tourist town that produced so much ephemera. And that's matchbook covers, and that's postcards, postcards. and that's flyers, and that's everything. Well, so, my mother's got a good collection of postcards that my, my really? grandmother had collected. Yeah. So I'll be sure to yeah. get them to well, you. Well, again, I, and I'm not saying, oh, my gosh, we've got to have these, or oh, my gosh, these are worth millions of dollars. But I do tell people, this is something that needs to be preserved or protected. And if you want to keep it in your family, great. Make sure that your children and your grandchildren know this is significant. And put it in mylar or put it in acid-free paper. Put it in a safe place. Because generally, the tragic part of Estes Park and everywhere is that you get material and the kids say, throw it out. Put it in the dumpster. I don't recognize what it is, and it goes in the dumpster. Some of the best collections in Estes Park, private collections, are from people who live next to a dumpster of someone who was here in the 1920s and 1930s. They recognize the value. They go out and dumpster dive and pull out amazing negatives. I've seen oil paintings pulled out of wow. from R.H. Talent. That's early, early R.H. Wow. Talent is one of our best early artists. And so, again, folks, it's out there. And, again, eBay's made it wonderful because you don't have to go search for it. It now comes to you. There's an added expense to eBay. We all understand that, but sometimes things are misdescribed, misidentified. I have a friend in Loveland who is a maniac on eBay, and he knows how to search, and he spends the time required to search. So his best thing from the Big Thompson Canyon came on eBay described as California, question mark, Canada, question mark, and it was the Big Thompson Canyon. It was some of the original road work done in the Big Thompson Canyon to open it up. Not the, not the 1903 1904 with the dynamite and opening up the narrow section, but clearly 1910, 1911 with, with road crews that were using horses, or yeah. teams of horses. So it was early, and it's, a, it's an amazing collection, and he's kind enough to share it. And I try to share everything I have, and again, I haven't yet, and but we'll get there, I promise. Yeah, I mean, uh, projects take time. Yeah, projects take time, and other things come up. Life and happens. So, and life happens, and then we got into the Sanborn collection. And again, we're clear off my candidacy. But then we, we switched over because the Sanborn collection, which was housed in Commerce City, uh, Harold Sanborn was a photographer who started out as kind of a newspaper vendor mm -hmm. uh, and a magazine wholesaler. And somehow he got the idea that maybe tourists would like postcards. Um, and so he went crazy with postcards. He has 17,000 negatives uh, produced between 1933 and 1961 that we know of. Then there were earlier uh, negatives that deteriorated. So again, a gap there, and we'd love to, you know, if someone had a postcard corresponding to that, that would show us, oh, this existed. Um, and some are very rare, and some are quite common. And so the Sanborn collection is something that we, I started utilizing, going down and, and you know, going to Commerce City when they allowed me, when they finally trusted me enough, because it's an invaluable collection. And then ultimately, they said, hey, we're getting ready to kind of get rid of this. What would be something that you'd be willing to pay for it? And yeah. so, and the, the museum had first go, and they said, this is not something we can afford or something I don't know. They can answer for themselves. But I said, we got to save this. And it's not just Estes Park, but it's Colorado and Wyoming. But it's still very valuable. And, you know, we're printing guidebooks for that. They're selling well on eBay. I'm not saying, oh, my gosh, we're going to be millionaires. But there is... A value to, to letting people know here's what that what's out there here's what we're missing here's what we'd love to see here's what he wrote down in an inventory book when he came through Estes Park put either a title or a description 
and a, that a tantalizing business. And wow, it'd be great to find that postcard because we're con we can't find the negative. He didn't save all the negatives. There was a move from Portland where the production work was being done back to Colorado. And at that time, I think a lot of these negatives were either lost in transport or again, thrown away. I have no way of knowing it's the business is still operating, but no longer in the family. Um, and so all I can do is take what I have and try to make reasonable assumptions about where things is. Sometimes th these negatives are stored in sleeves, kind of like manila sleeves right. that you slide things in and out of. And sometimes things would be misfiled, or sometimes a sleeve would be folded in half and put in another sleeve. So things that I thought were gone, you know, never to be recovered, were tucked in or misfiled. And so I'm like, okay, so I know this existed. And so, again, I don't think any of this is going to turn up. I think it's in a dumpster somewhere. But we're, we never stop asking because okay. part of it is just getting the word out there and letting people know it may exist. And that's true of everything. Everything related to Estes Park from it's the Holy Grail of an Isabella Bird letter to something recently from, you know, a, a little flyer, some kind of thing they put in a card rack for a, a business that closed last year or last. All of that's important. Yeah. Uh, and it could be a chicken wing place. And it, I don't care what it is. We're trying to reconstruct Estes Park's downtown business history from 1905 forward. Again, not related to the candidacy, but that's what I did, and that's what I did. Gotcha. So let, let's move to the candidacy okay. right now. Um, so you, you've stated publicly that you're, you're not really running to win this. You have right. other motivations. Yeah, so my so other motivations are to get things out there that maybe people aren't comfortable talking about or think... Uh, the county is handling this, or we're okay, don't bother us about this job. So one thing I've slipped in the back door uh, is COVID and SARS-CoV-2. Uh, I have expertise. I haven't worked with it directly, and I'm not going to work with it directly, but I know from all kinds of conferences that I had to sit through hours of and all kinds of you know papers that I've read, I knew early on, and again, I'm not saying I'm Cassandra and I knew what's going on here and you need to listen to me. It was obvious, even back in December of 2019, this was coming to the United States. We probably weren't prepared for it, even though we said we're the number one country, we're the greatest country in the world for being prepared for an outbreak or a pandemic. It turns out we're not. And so people don't like to hear, and I'm sorry to say it, that we have not handled this well, but we have not handled this well. And you can say, oh, Colorado's done well. Well, they've done okay. They're not the worst. They're not the best. Um, and so from March on, I was pounding on every door I could and going to every, you know, person of, of, of had some power in the in the county and say, we got to get testing. We've got to get testing. Yeah, there really was got, a lack of testing. There, unfortunately, there was. And people, you know, turned on the CDC and said, you put out a bad kit, and you remember that at the time. Everyone had the ability to make their own testing. This was not hard. PCR is not hard. We've known about it for 30-plus years. You can put any primers you want in there because China had made the sequence available uh, and shared it with the entire world in December 2019. So that's not an excuse to say, oh, the CDC screwed up. Again, I'm not saying I support the CDC. I'm not, I'm not going to be the apologist for the CDC, but that wasn't the reason that we didn't have good testing or we didn't catch this early. We, so we so how do you think we should have handled it differently? Well, here, I think CSU, again, I wish, and again, it doesn't matter. I can yell all these things in a, in a room, but I wasn't powerful enough to convince everybody it was important. I think CSU should have shifted over most of their labs to, to testing. Now, they weren't going to do it. Uh, and Didn't, I, I weren't the, they involved in some oh, they, the rapid I mean, tests that uh, came know, out? Again, uh, everybody can say that, but I know how much lab space they have. I know how many PCR machines they, they have. Everybody should have been tested. I, ideally, and this wasn't going to happen, everybody should have been tested every day. Yeah. Now, again, that could not have happened. We don't have the reagents for it. We don't have the money for it. 
But if you say, how are we going to get through this next time, which is the question that came up, we're going to behave like people behaved in South Korea and people behaved who had been through this earlier with SARS. And they had adequate testing in place yeah. and they had great contact tracing. And I get it. You lose personal liberty and personal freedom. But we have lost a million people. In yeah, when it's a survival States. situation, I think that kind of changes yeah. well, the dynamic. And again, it, it, I'm not a policymaker, and I'm not a guy who sits around and says, how can we do this different? I only look at other countries and say, how did they get through this? How did Norway get through, and you know, still continues so well? And, and it's, a, it's a population that has a high level of trust. Uh, and a population that was willing to go get vaccinating with vaccinated without being told you're going to lose this and this and this right if you don't get vaccinated. Um, some of them are draconian, and I get it. Nailing people in their homes is not what we're going to do in the United States. We can't do that uh, and still survive as a democracy. But Taiwan did not nail people in their homes. Very strict as far as people coming in. And again, I understand all these people... I know. It's an island. They have more control of their borders than we do here. Then when we got vaccines, I was so pounding on the table at every board meeting. Hey, trustees, mayor, get out there and advocate and say, I got my vaccine. You know, like the World War II, putting the muscles up in the air. It's like, hey, here's where I got my vaccine. And I'm not saying they didn't. I'm just saying there was some skepticism and there were some people who got on social media and said the exact opposite, who are in positions of leadership in town who have disappointed me tremendously. I'm very disappointed. You can have those opinions as a leader. I hope you don't express them. Um, it's when they say this is a crime against humanity, this vaccine was developed as a crime against humanity, or it's a death shot, or they put up fake statistics. I think it was a miracle statistics. we were able to pull it off as quickly this, as we did. This, the, the quickness, well, the ability to test it for reliability and safety, this is the least risky vaccine we have ever produced in the history of medicine. Yeah, I think it's and like a one of the most scientific miracle. efficacious. And if people only had a little more time to spend on biology in high school and college, they would have realized this is an mRNA vaccine. It has no way of entering into your DNA system. It cannot harm you. Uh, it just is there to create a template for a protein that the body recognizes, and that's how it you know, merges with our cells. And this creates antibodies to prevent that. And I don't know why people fought so hard on something that was going to save so many lives. Um, so that's been a disappointment. We're going to have a booster coming up. It'll be in June or July because immunity is waning. I apologize. This is a respiratory disease. It's not something that goes right into the bloodstream so the body knows exactly how to create antibodies efficiently and maintain them with memory T cells to never have to you know, have more booster shots. But I'm not going to apologize for that. And I'm not going to apologize for saying for a vaccine to be effective, it must not be an individual effort. It has to be a community effort. You cannot be selfish about this. You have to get up to 80% herd immunity. And I don't care if you, again, I do care. I wish you'd get it through the vaccination. But if you want to get it by, you know, naturally infecting yourself, don't recommend it for a number of reasons, but at least it gets it up to 80%. Right. I don't know the long-term sequela of people who have been infected with COVID. I have been very lucky, and I'm not saying again, ha ha, I sit in judgment of you. I have had no instance or reason to go get tested. I have no instance or reason to take any medication for this. I have no instance or reason not to get vaccinated. And again, I'm not saying, and you should live that way. You couldn't. It was impossible. And we couldn't have gotten everybody vaccinated and not get everybody in other countries vaccinated. That still is what we experienced. It was a 
lost cause. And I feel so bad because it was a lost cause from the beginning. So next time, next time, we're going to have a way to get everybody vaccinated at the same time. Or we go through what we're going through. And I hate to say this, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, we are not through this. And I'm, no. all I have to do is look at wastewater uh, and see we've got a spike coming. I look at Europe. I see yeah. England. I see Germany. We're going to get hit with it in two weeks again. And so I don't want to be like, oh, the world is going to end. We're going to get through this. And I've always said we're going to get through this. But we have to get through this by being a country that doesn't get caught up in trying to, you know, yell and, and get angry and have their way on, on subjects that they may not be as knowledgeable about. And sometimes, again get kind of caught in and got brainwashed by information that's not legitimate and not, not true. Right. So that's been something I brought up. Um, I will continue, whether I'm elected or not, which I won't be, I will continue to... Well, what's going to happen if you do? You, know, you might. Yeah, I, I won't. I, yeah, I won't. Listen, I won't be up late that <laughs> Tuesday night. It was not within the realm of possibility unless... No, it, it won't happen. Um, I lost last time to uh, you know some, a candidate who didn't even... I, we won't go into it, but <laughs> I, I can be beat by convicted felons. So that's that's the level of, of how much people love me in town. But again, I get I get issues out there. And so another issue that I'm very, uh, very, very passionate about is immigration and how we treat people um, at or below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. And that's not a winning thing to get to campaign on. And even if all the Hispanic population voted for me, which they're not going to because I don't speak Spanish and I'm not really saying, hey, and I understand your problems. I don't. Um, it would still only be 15% if, you know, I swept all of that. That was a majority. But I'm still going to advocate for uh, part of Estes Park's history that's very sad to me as far as their treatment of African Americans, as far as their treatment of Asian American and Pacific Islanders. And so, and I said, and, you know, I, I, I hope, I hope we get to the point that whoever's elected will still continue to listen to me and say, we have got to talk about apologies or reparations for a family that we chased out of town after World War II broke out, and they were uh, Japanese. And they had been living here. It was the Kato family. Been living here since the 1920s, mid-1920s. Father was very talented, was an artist. His first wife died, uh, and she was very talented, and we had uh, a wonderful tea room in our community because of her. And they had two children born in the United States, U.S. citizens, and they were, as so many people in the wintertime out in, they weren't in Estes Park because most of Estes Park businesses closed down in September. So they were out in California uh, when Pearl Harbor occurred and then the order came down to put all Japanese people in internment centers. <sighs> Mr. Kato got out of the internment center in California, came back to Estes Park and said, and was released because he said, I'm a business person in Estes Park. I have a business I'm a volunteer firefighter in Estes Park. Please let me come back and, and you know, open my business and be a citizen as I, as I have been for you know, 15 years. And the Estes Park Town Board came before them and they said, we don't want you here. Wow. And that was a very dark moment for me in Estes Park's history. We could have done, you know, we could have acted different than other communities were acting at the time. And, and again, we can say, oh, this is what everybody's feeling was at the time. We could have risen above that. And we didn't. And there were people like our governor at the time in Colorado who said, if you hurt them, meaning the Japanese people, you're hurting me. And he's a white person. And he lost his reelection bid because of that, because the feeling at that time was very anti-Japanese, anti-German. Understandable. It's a war. But people who are not part of that, who are on your side, 
you should not be um, well, alienating human, and putting human beings are human beings, and, and yeah. you know our community is made up of and, human beings. And so he lost his business, um, and it wasn't the worst thing. Again, he he got to Denver rather than having to go down to one of the internment camps in in southern Colorado. He kind of resurrected his life and went out into California. But I talked to his daughter in person, and she's saddened by Estes Park's behavior. She married a man who is a decorated World War II veteran who was second-generation Japanese living in Hawaii. So her patriotism should not be questioned. And I think, again, we hurt that family so deeply, they deserve, and she's asked for an apology. I can give her an apology. I did at the time. It means nothing. We have to have our mayor and our town as a whole at least look into the possibility of apologizing to any of their surviving family members. Sure. This was an awful, ugly chapter in American history. And I'm sorry, again, that I'm getting so upset about this, but it just disturbs me that we know about this and we don't do anything about it collectively as a community. Well, I mean, you know about it. Now I yeah, know about well, it. Well, and I've tried to get it out there. And again, I, I appreciate this podcast may help get it out there. But that's one chapter that's not very, you know, it, it makes Estes Park not look like that beacon on the hill that I think we ought to aspire for. Yeah. And so, and they, you you may know, I've been very angry about the um, restrictive covenants that have shown up from the 30s forward. Yes. Um, that have said, no, only white people can live in this neighborhood. There are other communities that have discovered this, other tourist communities. And I brought up Cody, Wyoming, which is not exactly the hotbed of liberalism. Uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Again, Idaho, not exactly, but they recognized this and said, we have got to, ex what's called e e extinguishment of encumbrances. It's just a statement that says, not in my town. Right. It's a sign that you put out that says, this is not me. And I tried in Estes Park and got nowhere with that. And so, again, the idea is, well, everybody else in Colorado is doing it. We're no different from them. I want us to be different from them. I want us to be a welcoming community to every race and religion, or I don't want to live here. And so that's just part of that. So well, again, apologies. I, I, you never have to apologize about being passionate about good issues. Um, that that just shows you're 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 a human being. Well, you know, we used to be a great country. I'm not saying that you know that Jeff Daniels in the newsroom where it's like, well. You know, we used to fight for moral reasons. We used to fight poverty, not fight the poor. We used to pass laws um, that were for moral reasons. We used to strike down laws for moral reasons. Everything that comes up before the board now, it seems to me, is done for political reasons or for economic reasons. And I think at some point we've got to have board members that say, I'm taking this stand for a moral reason because I don't agree with this morally. And so if there was a position after, you know, I'm 90 years old and I'm still here in Estes Park that they could carve out called Estes Park's conscience, I would apply for that job. And again, we need somebody to kind of be the ombudsman for what's morally right and what's proper. And I'm happy to take on that role. And I, again, I think it's something we need to think strongly about doing. Do we have collectively the will as a community to say we've made mistakes in the past, we make mistakes right now, uh, and we need to get better on it. Sure. So, yeah. You know, I, I got to say, I, I'm actually fairly hopeful. Usually with elections and such, I'm not. Like, it's, it's just, but I think we've got a common tide right now. That... With this election, we've got younger... Listen, this problem's going to be solved in two generations. I know it will. Right. I know that the younger generations have grown up differently than I grew up. 
Uh, and so, and I, I, I look forward so much to that time. I have zero tolerance for racism. I will say it a hundred times. Don't get around me and say anything that's even remotely, you know, has a tinge of racism. And that's why I'm worried about some of the anti-vaccination people in town because their language verges off into, um, you know, I'm being treated like a Jew and this, my government is the Nazis. Um, and, I, I and don't like that. I that don't... That's an overlap we're seeing across the country. Correct. Correct. And, and I, 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 gosh, I want to kind of extinguish that so much. If you don't get your way every time in a democracy, it does not mean you're the victim of tyranny. Sometimes you don't get your way. And sometimes you have to go along for what the common good is. And we've got to get that back. because We can't be selfish. We've got to love our, again, this is all kumbaya stuff. We've got to help our neighbors. And in times of crisis, Estes Park rises to the occasion. Yeah. I'm not saying we do. We know how to put aside those differences. But sometimes we, again, fall short. And so mm -hmm. I'm a little bit pessimistic. And you can, I, again, I admire Kirby for coming in and saying we're, we're, we're a town that I, I love and admire. And I want that to be true. I so want that to be true. And so, as I say, kick out the stops. Make me be saying things that aren't true anymore. Say, doggone it, John, we, we are doing what you're asking us to do. So I, I, I'm appreciative that you can get this out on, on your podcast. Uh, I haven't been shy about saying it. Um, I got into the Trail Gazette kind of editorial uh, board where they judge who's worthy and who's not worthy. And I said from the beginning, you're not going to endorse me. I'm not going to get elected. And then I got into a pissing contest with some of the people who were interviewing me about how, you know, what warheads are targeted where. We're missing the point, which is I want a better evacuation system in place. And I'm not saying it's because we're going to have a dirty bomb. I'm not saying it's because somebody's going to drop a biological weapon. It can be a fire. It can be Yellowstone starts to erupt. Whatever, we need to be able to get out of town faster than we can. And well, like, and we saw yeah. that. We saw a direct demonstration yeah. of that with the, the yeah. evacuation. And, and, and again, to be fair, no one died. And to be yeah. fair, it was efficient. But also, to be fair, Paradise in California had zero time. We had two days. Um, and down here at the Marshall Fire in Superior Louisville, they had a six-lane turnpike right next to where the fire was occurring. We've got two reds, two roads out, you know, when it's not open in the in the summertime over the Trail Ridge, um, that were clogged. And that I will I willfully and at one point during an evacuation period, there was only one road. Oh out. yeah, oh yeah, and I and I think other people did too. I willfully, willingly pulled myself out of the evacuation line and said. I can wait. I don't think the fire is encroaching so closely, and I don't want to run out of gas. I was very worried that people were going to run out of gas. Sure. So, again, I was at this emergency preparedness meeting. I was the only, you know, potential candidate or trustee there, but I'm sure everybody else is up to speed. Maybe they, and they do, probably know more than I do, but we can't bury power lines. It's too expensive. It's too expensive to even talk about burying power lines. We can, you know, do it in limited places where we see there's a high risk. We can't cut down all our trees. We can't yeah. because no one would live here. So we have to live with the risk, and I've advocated for two things, and they're not going to do them, but it's a siren, as I you know, spent time in Hawaii, and yep. they have a siren that goes off tests every week uh, for tsunami warnings. Yep. And so, yes, it can't get to certain individuals. Yes, it's too, you know, broadcast too big of a, of a signal. It's not discreet. It doesn't tell people what the emergency is, but by God, if we had a siren going off, I think people, people would especially attention. tourists, would pay attention and then go to their cell phones or turn on their radio, whatever device they had, to say, what is going on here? And again, with this recent fire that we evacuated for, 
We knew what the, if there was a siren, we knew what we black ash was falling on my face the oh, yeah. night before. So there was no question it was a fire, not a flood. So again, we have these discussions. I, I, I understand and appreciate the other side. I'm just telling you, and again, I'm not predicting this. I'm, I don't want it to happen. And maybe I'm saying this so that it doesn't happen. So people can say, ha ha, you were wrong. I think we're going to have an evacuation in the next four years. I don't want it. I, I think it would be foolish for people who have lived in Essex for any period of time to not to, expect to, say, to have to say something happen, happen every couple of years. Yeah, to say it won't happen. And again, if it doesn't happen, and cross your fingers it doesn't, at least I know we're, pre we're preparing for it when it does. Well, we've gotten very, very lucky with our, our disasters in certain ways. Oh. And I think our luck is, yeah. we can't, yeah. luck is yeah. not a, yeah. a no, again, not planning. Right, and so this is the divine win. This is the Japanese who for years and years won every battle they entered because of divine win, because at the very last, something turned the tide that was from the gods. Right. You know, the, the God descended from a machine and saved Japan. Worked until it didn't work, and that was in 1945. We can say, oh, we're, we're lucky, we're lucky, we're lucky. At some point, that luck is going to run out. And there have been two fires I've been involved in very closely that not just luck, but the fact that there was, you know, stuff going on in the national park. So then federal funds could divert helicopters and planes fighting fires over in Fort Collins to our area. And so that was, again, wonderful for us. But we don't know that the next time that's going to be available and happen. So and, and the, the most recent fire where we evacuated in 2020. I was sitting, you know, in Nebraska, looking on a computer screen, watching the satellite images say, here's where the fire is. And, and somebody, and I'm not saying it's our fire chief, but someone put on social media, we're going to lose structures in Estes Park today. Yeah. And so that was that Saturday morning. And I told everyone that was around me, I said, our, our house is, it's gone. Because we were, the, we were on the front, you know, the YMCA, it was coming that way. Yeah. And so I said, we're next. And so prepare. And, and I, I, here I am. I got some stuff. I took 17 trips uh, leading up to that. because, And it wasn't because of that fire. We also had the fire going on uh, over in the Glenhaven area yeah, that was right. kind of approaching this way. So I said, I can't wait for the evacuation. I've got important things that need to. So 17 times I made a five-hour trip down and back because I didn't want to lose things. Again, I don't want to lose important Estes Park material. Uh, and so that's why it needs to be scanned. That's why it needs to be on a thumb drive or whatever in the cloud so that we never yeah. lose this. Because had I not taken those 17 trips and had what happened on Saturday even, you know, remotely happened, it's gone. Well, it's kind of related and related to the election as well. Mm -hmm. um, what What are your thoughts on the, the ballot initiative with the newspaper? Yeah, so paper? again, I'm the contrarian on both issues. And so everybody else has weighed in and said, uh, especially with the Tabor go ahead and give the town um, whatever they need to spend whatever funds they get. I am a fiscal conservative. And so, again, I have no base because uh, I lean more Republican, but I don't like the anti-science slant of the Republicans right now. But fiscally, the town has a lot of money uh, through the, you know, wonderfulness of all the tourists that came up and spent money after, you know, thinking COVID was, here's a, here's a break, I can go and have my vacation now. Uh, and I think that will probably continue I think people, even from Denver, there's a growing population there. They will come up on the on the weekends. So we will continue to... The whole idea of Tabor was to get money back to the taxpayers. Uh, we, in you know, 20, 2002 or whenever we changed that, we said, well, let's use it within town to make improvements. Wonderful, wonderful. But Nevada, Florida, Texas, Alaska, 
they give their residents money back. Or again, they don't charge them various taxes because they're tourist-based or they generate revenue from things that allow them to give some of this money back to... And, and again, I'm of the opinion that the individual people know how best to spend their money. I'm not saying I, I don't need the money, but I would, I would hope that that money would instead be... And it can't because we passed in 2002, uh, go to our folks at at or below the poverty line, uh, and if it came to me, I'd just, you know, turn it over to them. Same way with, with I said, if you, if, and I'm not going to get elected, but if I do, I don't need that money, it can go to childcare, directly to paying for scholarships for young kids. And I'm not saying, this is the position everyone should take. No, everyone has their own life, and everybody has to work hard and, you know, sacrifice to be on the board. I'm just saying I'm in a position where that's not important to me, but it doesn't mean, hey, and I want your vote because of that. I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I don't support this that vote. It will pass anyway. It doesn't matter. It's going to pass because the town has enough money that they don't need to be worrying about how to spend more money, um, and especially when it's going to a new town hall, which we can wait on. The police section of it can't wait. I understand that. We'll build a new um, place for the police to be headquartered. But our town hall wasn't built that long ago. It's not in yeah. danger of collapsing. Now, again, if, if I was with somebody who was on the opposite side, they say, you don't understand what it is to live and work in that town hall. Um, again, I don't know. I just I think there are other ways. Bedrooms. So uh, I, I, I think there's other work. places. Well, <laughs> the town hall has their own secret, you know, bathrooms that the public doesn't doesn't know about. I'm like looking at those and saying, how do you know which ones men and which ones women? And again, not a big deal, but it's not it's not horrible. I love the individual staff members of the town. Could not be nicer to me. I'm not saying I'm not saying they don't deserve really nice things. I'm just saying here's a case where enough's enough for me, for me, but that doesn't mean other people. But they, my gosh, how, how kind the clerk and recorder especially, when I am just causing them so much trouble <laughs> for them to be such good public, you know, representatives and, and always be kind to me. It's like, well, you, you people are amazing. And so I, I tend to rub people the wrong way. There was a guy I, I worked with um, when I was going through medical school. He was an attending physician, and he was—he had this reputation. And people came up to him and said, "There is only two assholes in this hospital, and you're both of them." And so I don't want to get to that point, but I'm—I'm not, I'm not going to apologize necessarily if I'm even one of those two. If I think it's for the best of the community, I'm not selfish about. I'm saying I want, I want, I want. It's I think the community needs to recognize this as a problem. So with the other initiative, uh, as far as putting the the public notices in their full length in the newspaper. I carried water eight years ago for this. I was working for the Trail Gazette, again, as a columnist, unpaid. And uh, the publisher came to me and said, would you write something? And I did, happily, because we were working well together. They opened up their uh, newspapers to me, their bound volumes. Everything was fine. And that did not pass. And it came up again. And this time, and I said, in public, you can go back and look. Uh, it's right there in, in one of the meetings. I said, I'm not supporting it this time through. Um, not again because the town needs to save that money. It's it's money that they're going to you know, I think it's waste. more of a, a point because I've, I've worked at the paper. Right. You know, I've, yeah. I've been the one to take the papers and put them oh, into the archive. Oh, oh, sure. So I know from. the state of that and I know yeah. the accessibility yeah. of it. Yeah, well, and the accessibility, and again, because of COVID, the accessibility has gone to zero. Right. And so that's what I bring up. And, and again, you and I are now talking inside baseball, but... You cannot go and see a paper. You can no. see the, the most recent issues in the, you know, down here in the library on first floor, if they haven't been taken out or, you know, if they made it to the rack. You can schedule a time to go over to the museum, but the museum's not open every day. Right. And it's good luck so scheduling much, something at the paper. 
Oh, and the paper's closed. As they say, they're not set up to have this anymore where you can go in. Loveland's closed to the public. You know, the head Lehman empire. Boulder, it's now in a strip mall next to an auto parts store. They're not letting you in the building. There is no access. And again, I'm not saying that there has to be 24-hour access, but we have 24-hour access via digitization. Right. And, and, and for someone like, you know, in that editorial last weekend, yeah. we were talking specifically about the technology may be there in, what was it, 40, 50 years, he was saying. That's ridiculous. We've had this technology for a decade or two. Um, and it's yeah. secure. That's yeah. one of the things yeah. I, on this weekend's uh, opinion piece I'm going to be doing my weekend rant. It's going to be on this specific subject yeah. because I really feel with with where the fire was coming in near the Y, with how flooding happens, you know, that archive, I don't right. believe is safe. I think it just takes one thing. Yeah. And no one's ever at the office. So, yeah. yeah. And again, you, I don't want to, to, you know, jump on your what you're going to say either. The last thing I will say is, though... Um, the, the town website's pretty darn good right now. They've improved tremendously since that last time this came up on the ballot. And they've got redundancies yeah. built in that are checked and they're, yeah. you know. And they've got all the meeting minutes, as far as I can tell. And again, I don't want to speak for them. They can speak for themselves. Every town board meeting is now digitized and available back to 1917 when we became an incorporated community. Right. And again, wonderful because, but I still want the hard copy saved. And so, no, this I issue, think it yeah, should, but I think yeah. the museum and the library. Right. And, you know, we can start, we can start burying things in mountains. I'm just saying we're a young country. It's not like we're trying to save a thousand years of records here. It's just let's put aside a hundred years of records uh, because, yes, you can digitize. Yes, you can scan. But sometimes the scanning's not 100% accurate. Sometimes well, the OCR is not 100% accurate. Should include let's let's go back. If you can, again, yeah. where you can and where, where it can be saved. And I'm always going to be a strong advocate for spending money on that because I know how important it is. And when you have the New York Times that has a really crappy scan on one of their pages from 1875 that could be the arrival of somebody who's going to come out to Estes Park on a ship from England... Gosh, I'd like to. I'd like that to be preserved so that we can, you know, find that. Yeah. Uh, because again, it just helps understand. Okay, here's when these people arrived. Here's how they traveled across. My gosh, you know, from from the the shipping records, they put passenger lists both in the paper and they save them because the ship might, you know, not make it to the, the other side, and so those people would be souls lost. They actually did this for a time on railroads in western United States. So I can track people on traveling on a railroad from California to Colorado Territory. Crazy. Uh, again, what a waste of column inches. But my God, if we have it, let's utilize it. If sure. I know Isabella Bird is in is in leaving Salt Lake City to go through, you know, into Nevada, why shouldn't I have that? I mean, if, if they took the time to say, here's the passengers who pass through this station... Near Elko, I'm like, oh, my God, what an amazing resource, and, and thank you for that. And we put in our papers early on hotel guests, and it's just like, here's the register, here's there, who everybody is. Very personal, very invasive, it never would be allowed today, but if it's there from the 20s, I'm going to utilize it. Yeah. And if it's it explains why, yeah, all the clues. If, if it explains why six months later there's a divorce in, you know, in the community, I'm like, well, they were registered at this hotel and not with their wife. Again, I don't like that kind of prying, but if it's available, I'm not going to overlook it. So. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, we're creeping up on an hour. Okay. What well, else do you want to talk about? That Ab absolutely nothing. We've covered it. Get out and vote. Well, um, what are you thinking as far as just real quick? Yep. Everyone was really talking about workforce housing. Just yeah. give us a quick, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm not against their current, I'm not for, excuse me, I'm not in favor of the current proposal that's going to come up and be great political theater on Tuesday. 
if you get a chance, tune in or show up. This is one of these times in two years so far of the mayor's reign where there's going to be real discussion. I love that when there's real democracy going on and people really standing up and expressing opinions. Thursday, like today or next Thursday? Next Tuesday Tuesday. at the town board meeting. Okay. um, It's going to be the hearing on should we put this impact fee, which is instead of a tax, put this impact fee on short-term rentals. Right. Uh, and so I, I, I'm fascinated. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm always like in the horse race. There's going to be three votes for and three votes against. It's very clear. And I don't think these people are going to change based on what occurs on Tuesday when they listen to the So what happens? The mayor so then what happens? No, no, the mayor's already on record is what she's going to vote for. So it's just one vote that I don't know. Sometimes people are pretty close to the vest about how they're going to vote. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So if it passes, it will be challenged in court. So I don't, but I think it might. I think it might. Again, put, check back on Tuesday and see if I was correct. Um, it's, 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 it's not ideal and it's, it's unfair, but we got to spread out the, the misery. And so we've got to, again, get money for workforce housing. And now we're all excited right now about, you know, 1117, House Bill 22-1117. It will bring a potential for pillow tax to be diverted for other things, including workforce housing. It's going to take a while. Uh, and Kevin's been on top of that. And again, I'm not going to steal that thunder. Uh, but we've got to look at other avenues for getting, and I've said, everything for me is on the table, and that means modular homes, that means houseboats, that means little homes, that means whatever yeah. to get people, uh, if, especially in the summer. And for me, it is, let's build uh, some type of institution of higher learning. It can be, you know, a fire prevention, whatever it can be to get people to stay here, Oh, because we always want the year-round economy, force the students to stay here, whether they like it or not, you're going to class, you're staying in this dormitory. And then when they go home in the summer, that dormitory is available for sure. workforce housing that's just employed. Now, again, that doesn't answer even half of the question, but it's it's another approach uh, to solving some of these issues. Uh, Whittier, Alaska has a 10-story apartment building. It's ugly. Yeah. No, I and, just saw a documentary on that. Well, and it's it's ugly as hell, but we but could put, we could put something up against the mountains where it's not impacting anybody's view or sight line. I don't want to. And again, people say it's too expensive, but... We got to have something. And, something. and when I'm in Hawaii, and I just feel so bad, people in Hilo side have to get on a bus at 3.30 in the morning to go work on the Kona side because the Kona side is so expensive to live in. Right. I don't want us to force, I don't want anyone forced to do that in Colorado well, or yeah. in Estes Park. But if it's what we have, it's the only thing that logically makes sense. And we have to build out near Alt or one and a half hour away because that, that's what the. I want to do something, and and when yeah. Kirby said I'm I'm results oriented, I'm not Paul, I'm not talking, uh, baby. She doesn't have anything on me. I want this done. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not for talking. I'm like let's get some concrete things in place. If they don't work, they don't work, and that's what the sad thing is. If it makes people angry, but it still is working, then you're just gonna have to get used to it. Um, and I want neighborhoods mixed. I want it to be like they were in the 1930s and 1940s. You get row houses along with you get the single family dwellings. Yep. You get apartments along with you get some big mansion. Yep. Because it's a diverse community that way. And the only way we get through that, and again, biologically or whatever, we have to have diversity. Well, I think we ABCs is a pretty good little model where, oh, yeah. where I lean on my neighborhood. And I, I, yeah. I, I think that's the heart of S's Park, at least with the workforce. So you're over near the hospital on the yeah, ABCDE? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a that's a project that way old in Estes Park and, and kind of a little bit ahead of its time. And it is a mix. And it definitely is a mix of apartments and homes and maybe not the highest rent neighborhood, but we need more of that. And right. so, and that's over again with the, um, when the Alva Adams Tunnel Project and so kind of between it's first, second, third, and fourth street. And it's that little pie wedge. 
And those were originally just government homes. Yeah. So it's, you know, near the rodeo grounds. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the American Legion is. Yeah. All that back there was modular homes. And now they've been converted and people had the chance at the time to either buy them or... And so, you know, I wish the federal government would step in and have some big project for us as part that could put homes in here because it, it, we can't do it on our own. Um, everything is... Uh, I like the ADUs. I don't think there's going to be much of them that will accomplish anything. Enough. I'm shutting up. That's, that's <laughs> all right, John. More thanks. I think this has just been a, an amazing conversation. Uh, again, I appreciate and, you doing this. Uh, uh, independent media is the way that it's going to be in the future. I know it because our newspapers are not going to be financially supported. Uh, people just don't read them anymore. So I wish you the best of luck. And, and you've been doing a great job. And I do. I follow it. And so at some point you're going to say, stop giving away free content uh, because, yeah, you don't I, want to I have everybody. To that. I've, yeah. got a, I've got a plan. i got a larger okay. plan where I've yeah. got to get the right listenership. Yeah. Well, and Slate's gone behind a firewall. All the good stuff eventually goes behind a firewall, and yeah. that's where you say, if I want it and I love it, I'm going to pay for it because uh, I mean, nothing's it, free. And it nothing's costs free. less. Than, I mean, if people, if I'm putting out good content and people yeah. are, are enjoying it, it's, it's yeah. less than a cup of a coffee sure. per month. Sure. So. Yeah. No, believe me, it's, it's a cheap way to get up to speed, and it's... <laughs> It's better than jibber-jabber, I'm telling you that, because that's some wild conspiracy theories get flung around there. And it's really, the nice thing is, unlike, you know, and I don't I don't mean to be down on the papers. Oh, it's, no, it's I, I instant, definitely It's right. instant, and the Hazeltons have been wonderful to me. I wouldn't have survived in this community without them giving me, you know, a voice. Um, it's instant news. And so we just, you know, this waiting until Friday to find out what's going on, nobody wants to live that way right. anymore. They want to know what's going on. I hear some sirens. What's going on right now? And so that's it's not going to change. We're not going to go back. And so we've got to advance and progress towards that. Enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All right, folks. Well, that was the interview with town trustee candidate John Meissner. And hopefully we'll be getting the uh, the two incumbents to come on the show and, and hear what they have to say. Well, have a great weekend. You've been listening to the Colorado Switchblade. I'm Jason Van Tatenhove. I'll talk with you soon.